Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 19, Here and Now. Now let's consider what we have to say about time. Here's the word time, and we see that it reads in the opposite direction, emit. This is a reference to the energy that is released at every moment by any existential observer of time. In other words, you cannot observe time without releasing energy moment by moment. So time, as experienced by human beings, depends on energy emission by those human beings. If you don't emit any energy at all from your central energy store, through the brain, down certain nerves, to the sense organs, then you will not perceive anything. If you become abstracted in your inner processes, you do not send energy to your external sense organs, but you do send energy from your brain centers to specific memory storage places to energize memory images. You do this in dreams, and in dreamless sleep you do something else. But you're still expending energy as long as you exist. And we see that the problem of space and time is related in this way. The musical notation and the stave show us a very simple representation of it. But now, let's look at another one. If I look down the room from where I am, I'm over here, and the rest of the room is like this, and the lost people are over here. Now, I cannot, with this physical eye, focus sharply on a very large area. It's quite a small area that I focus on. So I'm going to imagine that I'm looking at this group of people like this, but only a very narrow channel of vision is in focus, and the rest of it here is more or less out of focus. There's one part of the eye that will hold everything in very, very sharp focus, and the rest of the eye is not so sharply focused, and right on the periphery of the eye, it is very much out of focus, but it has a peculiar quality. The part that is most closely in focus gives me the sharpest formal definition at the expense of making the image static. You can experiment in your spare time with this, but where you are sharply in focus, and can define the form accurately, there the thing is static. But where the periphery is, where you are vague, you are very conscious of movement. So that if some obliging people on the periphery of this room start wiggling about or being irritated or scratching or turning their heads, my eye is very aware of the movement, but with no sharp formal focus. This has a survival utility value for animals and for human beings because your periphery being wired to movement detection centers in the brain means that any moving object that is out of focus will attract your attention and you will be able to become aware of that as a potential threat to your existence or a potential point of interest And you can then switch your eye rapidly to it to see if it is a danger potential or a delight potential. And if it is a matter of no moment to you, you can turn back and continue your focus elsewhere. Now this is very important because we are going to talk about the here and the now and how important it is. Remember, important means we are importing our energy into the time-space 
power situation. If I deliberately don't focus on any particular person by putting my eyes not focus on anybody in particular, I'm still aware there's a crowd of people there, but I can't see at the moment any particular features because I'm focused on a point in the air and I'm busy watching the little movement of the molecules of air insofar as they interfere by their peculiar refractive index with the light display. And when I do this, I take you in, in one moment of time, so that I comprehend the whole room's content in this one moment by not focusing. But then if I focus on a particular person sharply, and keeping a sharp focus, I want to look at the rest of the room, I must scan. So if I look at Sal in one second, and want to see sharper in focus to compare her with Abel, why I should do this I don't know, I must now turn my eye and look at Abel sharply in another second, and then at Claire, who is sitting very upright, and this takes me three seconds. Now when I do this, for the time being, I have lost formal consciousness of the remainder of the people in the room, and they have all become blurred. But if they move, I will become aware of the movement. And I might take a quick flip to see who is moving and why, or I might ignore it according to the character of the movement, if it is a curvaceous movement, and not sudden staccato and straight line-ish, I will not normally interpret it as aggression. But it could be, if he's a very cunning person. You may know that a fox will walk round a field to catch a rabbit in curves which do not startle, gradually reducing the diameter of its circle until it is walking round the rabbit within a foot. And the rabbit has watched it like this. <laughs> and because there was no straight aggressive line, it has not been scared. So we must allow the possibility that a curvaceous mover over there might be curvaceously throwing a boomerang. Still, we don't expect it here, so statistically we can ignore it. <laughs> now, observe that when I expend energy in sharp focus on one thing, I exclude for the time being a sharp focus on the rest of reality. And in order to see another thing in equal sharp focus, I must turn my eyes, and the turning of my eyes takes time. Now let's draw this. Supposing here is a lady, you can almost tell a lady, that's a lady, and here is a gentleman. Now, observe that if you focus on this one, this one goes relatively out of focus, and if you decide to compare that one with this, and look at this, then that one goes relatively out of focus, but you can retain an image of this in your memory and overlap it with this one in your memory and thus compare them. If they were exactly congruent, there would be no difference in the images and there would be little point in making the comparison. Now, observe another thing, that these two occupy different spaces just as surely as the different notes on the musical stave occupy different spaces. So this again is a space-time diagram. If I were to say that is the note E and that is the note G, then I would say I will spend one crotchet time looking at that one and the next crotchet in that one, but there is a gap between now, it takes time to turn my eye from this curly-headed lady through space to contemplate the straight-headed gentleman. So that I'm looking at the 
figure, then the space, and then the V. This is very important in music, because it means if I've got to come in at A, and then at B, at a certain point in time, I must cut my A's end off of it to allow me time to traverse the space to get onto B. And I can stretch the space a little bit, delay the B, or I can shorten the space and anticipate the B. And sensitivity to this kind of thing often makes the difference between good and bad phrasing. Now, let's use the story of the little fellow who is up from the country with a plum-coloured, long-haired suit on. This is a real person I'm describing. He comes from Darkest Staffordshire. He comes up once in three months, and his pocket is fat with his wallet, and he goes into some place of amusement, and he's looking round very slowly, in a manner like a, an old-fashioned bucolic, now very rare. And there's a little weasel gentleman with a sharp nose, very sharp eyes, with a partner, of course, and this bucolic gentleman is looking very slowly at all these unfamiliar things because the pace of his mentation, his mental process, is relatively slow because in the environment from which he comes, change is slow. But in the city environment of these little pickpockets, changes are quicker and they get more practice. Also, their peculiar occupation helps them to accelerate their rates of perception. So they actually perceive more percepts per second than he does. So they see that he has come in with his long hairy suit on, they look at his boots, they look at his slow way of looking round, they see his fat pocket, they see him pat it slowly and reassuringly, and they quickly work out he has been saving up. <coughs> they think very quickly of their course of campaign. A says to be unit round the other side, bump into him accidentally, apologise and start straightening his coat for him. And while you are doing this on the one side, I will go to the other side and remove his wallet. Now they are putting more percepts per second into their activity than he is. So in Christ's terminology, they are called quick. And in Christ's terminology, he is called dead. Relatively. That is to say, he has a relatively static and slow-paced mental process. Now let's see what this means in relation to the here and now. Supposing I'm a very, very slow thinker, and I look at this curly-headed lady and focus her, and this gentleman now goes out to focus. And he is one of these quick fellows. He knows he's out to focus, because I am focused on this curly-headed lady. In fact, he put the curly-headed lady there in order for me to focus on her, to divert my attention. While I am gazing at this curly-headed lady, he is quickly making up his mind what to do about certain schemes of his. When I focus sharply on her, I narrow my consciousness down to traverse the form I'm looking at, and I temporarily go out to focus for the rest. If he moves smoothly and curvaceously and non-aggressively, he is likely to go unnoticed. So that with this interesting object here, I am totally absorbed and totally focused and made unaware of the surrounding situation. And let us call this a now, in which I am focused on her. In this now, I have a purpose. I am emitting energy. I must have a purpose. I must emit energy. Otherwise, I don't see her. 
To see is to emit energy and to have a purpose. This is tremendously important because the amount of energy and the characterization of that energy depends upon my purpose. So that if I see interesting things, interesting means in accordance with my purpose. A thing cannot be interesting unless it seems to fulfill part of my purpose. To be interested is simply to see a possibility of the fulfillment of a purpose. Let us call that a now. But observe that the lady herself has a certain width of skull. So that when I sharply focus on the right hand curl on Sal and then decide I will compare it with the left hand curl I have to traverse the width of the face so we're going to use a technical term for this and we'll write it down for those people who can't see and we're going to say that all experienced events are protensive. Now, protensive means that they are stretched in time. They have duration. This is very, very important because a protensive event, an event is the actual process of perception. A protensive event is taking time for me to perform it. And if I perform this very, very slowly, another being might be performing some other less protensive event of his own, in which case I am at a disadvantage. Philosophically, all our experience is based on protensive events. We are seeing things extended in space and time. It takes time to see space so that we cannot separate space and time and the energy that we expend in perceiving them. Space, time, power we must think of as a trinity. Do not think of power being expended except through time on a given space. When the ancients saw the external world, they ordinarily saw it protensively. That is to say, they took time to travel along the tiger from the tail end to the jaw end. And you can imagine a man who's focused on the end of a tiger's tail sticking up out of the bamboos and it's going like this and he is looking at it and then going slowly along like these folk do <coughs> to the other end and at the other end he goes <coughs> now into his protensive experience he gets a little shock how did he know with his protensive mode of perception that that little wiggling bit of fairy stuff had a tiger on the enemy. <laughs> he didn't. Now many men were lost through extended experience of this type. It still happens. If you've got a pussycat and it hasn't been trained to be a vegetarian, <coughs> that means most pussycats, and you observe it in the garden stalking a bird, it will often flatten its body onto the ground and creeping very slowly along will pause at particular intervals and erect its tail and bend the tip of it like this. And when it does it, the birdies look up and they see <laughs> and the birdies go <laughs> and then something jumps on them. <laughs> This is part of what uh, Christ said, uh, I can't tell you everything just now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will enlighten you. St. <laughs> Paul called it strong meat not fit for babies.
<laughs> now, some other men long ago called Chaldeans or white judges they said this pretense of kind of experience isn't the very best surely there's a better method than this we can devise so they said let's take any percept that's extended over time and practice turning our heads very quickly and see how quickly we can get a sharp focus on both ends of the tiger that is on Sal and Claire one of them is the tail and the other is the jaws we're not giving away which <laughs> now the Chaldean said let's divide this protensive occasion and concentrate on the first half and put more energy into it and see if we can't quickly focus, focus, focus and do this in one and a half crutches instead of three and then let's practice again and let's practice again and again now you can see what's happening if we keep on halving this protensive event our moment of sharp focus is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and what we want to know is is there a limiting factor to this process of intensification of observation now we know that in the nervous system of a human being as of animals in general a percept involves the release of energy quanta nervous impulses have to dash from one place to another from a brain center along the optic nerve and so on to a certain destination they must go so how quickly can we persuade those nervous impulses to travel now their rate of propagation through a nerve after much examination has been considered by some thinkers to be more or less fixed others doubtless the different speeds of the reaction of certain animals suggest that there must be some other factor at work under certain critical situations for instance you may be having a protensive walk sharp walking looking in large windows slowly panning your eyes over the goodies and you might suddenly see in the reflection in the window a large lorry mount the curb and proceed to dash rapidly towards that same window and at that moment warned by the linear quality of the motion of that lorry that it is aggressive by your peripheral motion awareness you suddenly leap out of the way if you're lucky now we're going to put that word lucky down because it's related to another word come to that in a moment when you intensively perceive with the deliberate intent of shortening the gap between percepts your activity is intensive you expend more energy in that moment and you are moving towards this limiting factor in your nervous system you can see what will happen to a certain point and anybody who's actually played a musical instrument will know that in practicing very rapid passages often a saturation point is reached where the muscles are blocked so they cannot release the energy quick enough to redo the act so if I put my finger down on a note and I have to pick it up again to strike it again every time I pick it up to get the necessary height to attack it with the force I want it takes time to lift it up now if I want to get it down again I have to fire another nerve impulse at certain muscle groups to put it down and if I fire them too quickly it hasn't got time to get up in order to come down 
result is a feeling of blockage, an actual impedance of action by the very nervous impulses that are aiming at increased efficiency. Once upon a time, not very long ago, it was believed in aeronautics that there was a sound barrier and that planes could not fly through it. Again, there was an impedance, it was generating its own resistance, but after certain redesigning and rethinking mathematically and so on, they broke the sound barrier. It has been said there is a light barrier and that bodies cannot travel faster than 186,240 miles per second. This remains to be seen in the future. Men are always setting up barriers and their sons, <coughs> like all sons do with fathers, break them. Now, the question arose, are we committed to a limit of intensification for accelerated perception so that there is a certain decisive point where we cannot get faster? Now this greatly intrigued the Chaldeans. They had divided time up now into moments that were so small that ordinary people thought these moments didn't exist. Now this meant to say that the great white judge could actually take advantage of his slower brother because he could perceive more in less time. Now, those of you who are engineering students will know that you talk about a moment in engineering terms and you mean by it the point in time where a change of direction of motion occurs. So that if I had a lever there, balanced on a fulcrum, and I put a weight on there, and I press it with my finger here, I can balance this weight with my finger, and then if I press down a bit harder at a certain point, my end will go down and the weight will go up. Now the precise point where that change occurs is a moment. Using the word technically, a moment. So a moment then is a portion of time in which a change is induced. Now moments therefore are terribly important because only in a moment can you change your mind. This means only in a moment have you any initiative. Only in a moment are you free. Now, it is usual in philosophy to treat moments as abstract ideas and protensive events as real. That the moment is only an abstraction of the intellect made by theoretically subdividing a protensive event, that is an event with a degree of time duration. But it was suggested that maybe if you crammed it hard enough and impeded yourself on this timeline you might put so much energy into it that a totally new mode of perception might emerge. And we represent this one by an arrow going at right angles to the timeline. Remember we're thinking about a very tricky subject. It is generally accepted that it is possible to conceive all historical events in the world on a single line that is, we can draw a line, and we can write 1066 on it, and 1215, you know these dates. Those of you who are lovers of Tchaikovsky will know at least one date. And we can write these dates on one single line, and this we will call time. And there is a passive acceptance by people in general that all temporal events fall on this line 
Because at any given moment, a living person is observing a portion of that timeline. And if we're up to 1968 here, we are observing here. And all the beings that we're observing before we were born, and who are now no longer with us, are considered by us to be non-existent simply because our mode of perception is narrowed down to now. And our now is 1968. If we go back to consider this idea, and we will see, if we put time in this manner, and then try to draw the orbit of the Earth on a single timeline, and the orbit of Venus and Mercury and the Sun, because the Sun also has an orbit, and the orbits of Mars, and Jupiter, and Saturn, and so on. If we try to draw all these motions on one line, we will find it rather difficult. We could do it with a kind of wiggly line, or we could do it with a kind of spiral line, going all through the infinities of space that we can perceive. I mean, we can do it, theoretically. We really haven't the time to do it, actually. But we can think that we could do it if we live long enough. We could draw that line. But that line is not a straight line. We cannot draw the time event of the Earth on a straight line. As anybody knows who flies from London to New York, and then from New York to London, and because the Earth is rotating one way, time going and time coming are not quite the same. And because the Earth is spinning on its axis, and going round the sun, the Earth's line is already quite complex, made more so by the fact that the whole solar system is travelling through space. So when we t tend to think about time as on a single line, we are really just oversimplifying the situation for our own convenience. Now we can do this for our own convenience, when we are going to one particular place, we can deliberately say, well, it is what is called an hour's journey from A to B. I want to go to B and be there at 8, so I will start at 7. And deliberately draw an imaginary timeline and then go to it. But the peculiar thing about this timeline is that it's spatially equivalent. The actual journey we travel is not a straight line at all. Not only because the roads along which the car travels are not straight, but because the Earth itself is spinning and travelling round the Sun and the Sun round another place. But nevertheless, it is customary in general Western philosophy to say that it is generally accepted by philosophy that all the temporal events of the universe can be theoretically written on one line and placed and dated on that line. But the same philosophy says this means the time is much easier to deal with than space, because space cannot be represented on one line. It requires three lines at right angles to each other. Space is three-dimensional, and by the previous view, time is only one-dimensional. It is therefore said that it is easier to think about time, because space has two extra dimensions. Now, this can only be arrived at by deliberate simplification of a highly complex thing. Now, we're coming to the important part of all this. What do we mean by here, and what do we mean by now? We're going to deal with space and time. And we're writing here and now. Now, when we say now, we're using a statement that really means I, an observer, am emitting energy to my organs of perception. A now only exists when I emit energy from my energy store to an organ of perception, and so stimulated. 
All now, therefore, depends upon the fact that we are emitting energy. And what do we mean by here? This is rather trickier. Because now what we mean is the locus in which the observer himself exists. So I'm going to draw for here a circle, and I'm going to put an eye in it, because the observer is talking about his own immediate environment when he says here. And if he is asked to say precisely what does he mean by here, spatially, he will have to say where I am. So my here, for me, is right in the centre of my observing consciousness. And if I refer to Margie on the back row, I call her there, relative to my body, my observation pose, although I would say she is here, within this room. I call her here, providing she is within my observed environment. Prefix this with a T and make it into there. Then I must write the T on the periphery of my awareness. A there is a here for another being that I have peripheralized. So if I look at Margaret at this time, she looks as if she's looking. She looks as if she's listening. And because of certain similarities in her expression of mine, by analogy, on a purely materialistic hypothesis, I could infer that she is feeling more or less, according to the principle of the common touch, more or less like I would be feeling if I had that kind of expression on my face, and now we're not kidding. And I would say, because she's on the periphery of my field of observation, then I will prefix the here, which belongs to her, with a T to mark the periphery of my observation, and I will say she is there. The fundamental idea is this. H is an old glyph written in Egyptian like a flash-twisted cord, and anciently like a ladder, and it means power, and it means hierarchy, and it means levels of possibility. Now this is tremendously important, because you never make a decision in the whole of your life about anything except in a here and now. That means the here means a power situation with the power differentiated into different beings. If I can see the differentiations of power in the here, and then I emit energy that is created now, if I emit my energy onto a particular part of that here, a moment occurs. Remember, a moment means a change. But when I emit energy, and thus create a now into a here that is a differentiable power situation I create a moment a moment means a new orientation now we, we can begin to see why all the sages say live in the here and now that is in a full sharp intensive awareness of the differences of power in all the beings presented within your field of experience. Just for last, you can notice that now spells the word one victory backwards. Remember, Every man that has ever been called great in the history of the human race 
has had one quality and one only in common with every other great man. Their noses are different lengths. Some go up, some go down, some are thin, some are broad. All these things differ. Napoleon, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Stalin, Trotsky, all these men have different shapes, but they have one thing in common, and this thing they never wrote about in their works, although it was factually a basis of their whole dynamic approach to life. They always lived in the here and now. That is, they were always looking at the power differentiations presented in that situation in which they were emitting energy. So they were momentary figures. We call them momentous occasions when these men enter. When these men enter, it is a moment in history. There is a reorientation. Any person who cannot get in here and emit energy in the now is at the mercy of any other person who cannot get in the here and now. <coughs> Some people think this is a very hard doctrine. It's a very hard doctrine. We're not going to deny it. We're not even going to, going to say we hope it isn't true. We just have to accept that it is true. That there is a real difference of power in every being and even within the same being at different moments of life and under different physical and mental states. A person has a certain amount of available energy in one mood and by a verbal trick that person might be made to become depressed and the energy that he had five minutes ago might be now unavailable to him. This is a fact. <coughs> Political manipulation depends upon this fact. There is certain manipulation of sound symbols called words can produce high morale or low morale. Let's go back now. Imagine the whole universe is extended three-dimensionally and we're going to say that the event that happened a few moments ago when we were talking took place when the earth was in a place that now it is not. Because whilst we are talking the earth is moving. Every event is taking place as well as time. Monday the earth is in a certain position relative to the sun and the other planets. The next day, Tuesday, it has moved round a portion of its orbit around the sun, and 365 and a quarter. And in a week, it's done roughly 52th of its distance. So that every event in the universe happens not only in time but also in a specific location within time. So it is rather naive to think that time is on a single line as philosophy suggests and that we can actually place events on that single line and assume that the past now in 1968 has no spatial reality simply because we are not focusing upon it. There is a law in physics today, the law of the conservation of mass energy. And the same law logically extended will include the patternings of that energy in their total permutations which means that every event that has ever happened and is now happening, not only in this room, but in Tokyo, Vietnam, the Bowery, every event is taking place 
in its own locus. And the whole system of the earth is leaving its locality, moment by moment, so that the place where it then occurred is still vibrating. We cannot imagine that the earth is in one position, vibrating as it is, with its molecular vibrations, its atomic vibrations, its field vibrations, that it is vibrating in the position called Monday, and that on Tuesday, the position that was Monday has now stopped vibrating, or is totally unconditioned by the vibratory pattern of the earth in that place we call Monday. This means that all past events are still existing in their own places. But it also means another funny thing. All future events likewise are existing, waiting in their specific localities for the specific planet to catch up with them, to participate and respond to the stimuli of those total vibratory patterns of that locus. This means all time past and present and future is a function of an absolute here now. Remember the size of the observer is always greater than the observed. Every event that any individual perceives is perceived by him as a content of his consciousness. The content is always smaller than the consciousness. So the consciousness of an individual human being is greater than any defined object he may possess, and the consciousness of a group of human beings, a nation, or of the human race, or of the animal world, or the vegetable world, the consciousness of the totality of those beings is greater than the total content of all those beings. And if we apply this logically, strictly, we will go back to the simple observation that consciousness itself is infinite, and that only the content of consciousness is finite. Now, this is what the Chaldeans were chasing. If the mind tends to serialize protensively and to make events and by practice can cut them down, smaller and smaller, we can come to a point where we get total impedance of percepts. And this is very interesting. It means that if we perceive quickly enough and pack a sufficient number of percepts into a moment, the smallest moment there is, the universe is solid percept. The space itself is solid. This is a very peculiar thing. The physics today is not unaware of that there is no empty space in the naive sense. That space is power. That space, power, consciousness, the emission of energy from place to place, the generation of time, that all these leave no thing whatever within the infinite with any voidity at all. That reality is absolutely solid to the consciousness that perceives at its optimum rate. And this means that that consciousness will not see the universe serially at all. It will see it onely. And you know the title of Christ, the only begotten, here is the word, that's a G. This word means onely generated, 
the only generated, instead of the only begotten, notice here how this can totally mislead people. If religionists of the past have, for some reason and the difficulty of explaining what only generated means, have substituted only begotten and then fallen into saying that because Christ is only begotten, therefore there is only one of him in the universe, and therefore all other beings are inferior to his representatives on earth, we have to say, we have to restate the original meaning of the term. The original meaning is that if you are fast enough, remember Christ is talking about the quick, and he said it himself, if you go to my Father, greater works than these shall you do. He was just doing a few odd, relatively easy miracles like Lazarus raising and things like that. Well, there are cleverer things than that. And he was saying, go to the generative power and become a one, a proper one, by so increasing your rate of perception that instead of becoming pro-tensive, you become super-intensive until suddenly the universe for you is seen as a block with no seriality whatever. It is a block of power, infinite. That power is sentient, and only when that power is viewed finitely as emitting energy from one place to another does the concept of serial time apply. But when you take this highly intensive mode of perception and insist, insist, within yourself in attaining it, you come to this unific, total grasp of reality, and this total grasp of non-serialized infinite being is called eternality. When you are talking about eternity and time in opposition, what you are meaning is the non-serial and the serial. Eternal means non-serial. Total reality, non-serial. No voidity, full of power. Remember, power is actual. So the ultimate reality is absolute actuality. So it has none of the qualities of the solidity of a gross material object in the time process, <coughs> like a lump of lead, but it has something far more solid than that, so solid that there is no voidity in it, whatever, and no possibility of a serialization at that level, but only a total and absolute grasp of whole, infinite significance. Now, we can see the value of the here and now, because the only way to get to total comprehension of a situation is by high-powered, intensive perception high-powered, intensive feeling evaluation, high-powered, intensive volitional activity, simultaneously in the moment. Now, every person is making decisions continuously whilst they're alive. They don't know they're even making decisions about whether to breathe in or out or not at a given second. They think these things are conducted for them by a process called instinctive or reflex action because they have been taught so by the biologists and others. But in fact, every breath is a decision to persist in life. And every failure of a breath is a decision to get out. And the mind of a protensive thinker is vacillating from moment to moment. One moment he feels like living and he breathes. The next moment he remembers a depressing appointment and his breathing changes. There is a remarkable interpenetration of the energies that beat the heart 
that control the breathing, that determine the release of nervous energy throughout the system. So here and now is tremendously complex. Most people, when we say think in the here and now, most people think there's nothing in the here and now of any interest. Interest was last week, when we nearly got to the opera house, but the traffic block and the rain and the fog turned us back. Now that would have been interesting. Or there's next week, the circus is coming to town, but nothing is happening here and now of any moment. Now what could be more unfortunate? To think that you could make a decision last week in retrospect, or next week before you arrive. The only place any being from God downwards has ever made a decision, ever initiated an act, ever solved a problem, ever been momentous, is in a here and now. We will now go on to the practical aspect of this. How do we get into the here and now? There's only one reply to this. The answer is by doing it, by practicing it, by remembering every moment this principle that decision is here and now, not somewhere else. Not yesterday or last week, not tomorrow or next year, but now. And that if you do not become conscious in the here and now of this fact that decision is only possible here and now, then you are actually at the mercy of all prior decisions of yourself and the rest of the human race and the totality of forces in the universe. Either you free yourself in the here and now by your highly intensive self-observation, or you are at the mercy of the mass inertia of your previous decisions that were made vaguely and protensively, and the decisions of all the other people who helped you to build your environment before you were born, and the rest of the cosmic forces. So only in that here and now can you increase the value of life. Of course, the ancients joked about this by saying, let us take this symbol and define it for our children. And if they can solve the riddle, they deserve to get the benefit. Here and now. This is a word, hand, which means grace. It occurs in the name Hannah. It means grace. But this grace can only operate in the here and now. That is, nobody is free except in the moment. Remember, moment means the point of time and place when you emit energy, release energy into that situation and thereby change forever your attitude to total reality. Grace means hand, and hand means grace. The G there means the solid block of total reality. At the lowest level, the gross material earth, the race is the time and the extension through time of the manifestations of absolute power. The R means the ruling tendencies of the differentiating powers of that moment. And the ACE means the same exactly as the ACE in a pack of cards. Now a pack of cards derives from a highly important symbology and was simplified to keep the people happy so that they wouldn't try to get grace. But the rules were kept intact 
And in a game where you employ a pack of cards, you will find that in many of the games, and as a basic of card playing, ace can be either above the king or at the bottom of the pack. You can say ace high above the king, ace low, one finite individual. The reason is that ace means spirit. Spirit infinite, ace high, he is above the king. He does not have to accept the definition of mere kings because he knows that their definition is a finiting process. A king actually means to define, to limit, and thereby to impose on other beings, and thereby to rise above this definitional trick is to be ace high. But not to know that you are a spirit, and that spirit equals sentient power, is to be ace low. That is to be an individual who can be, and is frequently, treated as a material particle in the corporate existence of living being, as a particle that because of its lack of awareness of its own central power of decision is passive to the decisive activity of other beings higher up the hierarchy of self-knowledge. So we'll finish this short dissertation about the mystery of here and now and space and time by saying those who want to understand this thoroughly, let them take the word hand and write it on a postcard and keep it in their handbag or wallet or whatever they can find a convenient place to put it. Let them, if they can do it by a leap of faith, accept that whatever else they may think they may discover in the future, it will never be discovered other than in a then, here and now. And that the point of decision, here and now, to write that mnemonic and to refer to it, mentally write this law of grace in your minds and in your hearts, that is, understand it with your mind and love it with your heart. And then this grace will begin to operate as a control function, throwing out every lesser concept that would otherwise impede you. Focus in here and now, learn how to focus and shift focus quickly, and remember when you look at a specific object and focus on it, the rest tends to go out to focus. And when you change to look at another thing, deliberately practice remembering the one you have looked at, sharply and superimpose it on the new thing you are looking at and put them both in sharp focus and see if they're congruent. Do this as an actual exercise and then aim to increase your rate of perception so that you get more percepts per second, so that you become more intensive. A very good way of practicing this is to make yourself, when reading a book, read faster than you can, with full intensity, actually push yourself through that reading. You can soon feel the difference. But if you get a, a sentence, like as the waves make towards the pebble shore, an expression like that, and you deliberately focus on each word as you do it, and grasp the meaning of it, and force yourself onto the next word, retaining the meaning of the first word, and do it till you get hot. And this is the only way you can become intensive. Except another way. But the other way is harder. The other way is to sit down, do nothing, strike serial thinking out of your mind with one blow. That's called the sudden school. Sounds easier. Sit down. No serial thinking. All gone. You've now arrived. Better to do it the hard way.
You take the high road and I'll take the low road. When a musician is playing a serious piece of music, think of what he has to do. He's not only got to see a key signature and the number of sharps and the time and the notes. He has to continually remember these things. And when he's playing a sonata and so on, he has to remember that he's playing one of those and remember the pattern of it. And when he's playing the first part, he must play it in such a way and with the right space, time, power, so that when he plays the second part, the second part will be relatively neither too much nor too little, too fast or too slow, too loud or too soft. And then when he's doing the third part, he must remember the first two parts and play the third part in such a way that the first two parts receive their true meaning. I imagine in simple counterpoint, where you have only a few things, like four human voices to write for, and each voice has its own dynamics, its own tempo, its own space-time power program, and the conductor has to listen to only four voices. And he's requiring this person to sing a little louder, and this person to sing a little quieter but quicker, and this person to come in with a nice little glissando to a certain note, and then not too much because that's bad taste. And he must do all these things at once. I imagine what he's doing with the full orchestra. And you can understand why there are very few what are called good conductors. And then imagine another being that is conducting total reality in a block. Non-serialized. He's cleverer than Mozart. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.